Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Right. All right. Let's go. <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting fired up. Pacific Bitcoin is next week. Dude, Kurt. I am so excited. I'm I'm visiting three Bitcoiners on the way down. Super excited. It's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, man. All right. Good morning and welcome, Dom Bay, Mickey. I assume that's Jordan on the Bitcoin Veterans handle, Terrence, Peter, Shane Hazel out in the audience, throwing you an invite. Uh, right. Okay. Quick little update. So next week, th uh, next week, we are not doing Cafe Bitcoin on Monday and Tuesdays. Swan team is traveling on Monday. Tuesday, we're going to be having like an offsite. So not going to be around. Wednesday, we are resuming our regular schedule broadcasting from the hotel Thursday, uh, broadcasting live from the Swan Dome Thursday morning and Friday morning. So on Thursday, we've got our crew plus BTC sessions, Ben Perrin on Friday. We are going to have Tip, NZ, and Tomer Strolight. No, we'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! <laughs> yeah finally dude that's what i'm talking about that's preparation uh asking tip nz if she wants to perform cantillionaire's game live i don't know if that's gonna happen but we're gonna ask her if, if she does that i will need padded area around me because that that would be insane that's that's a tough song to do live, though, for sure. Lot oh, of, shit, yeah, right? You need to do some Wim Hof breathing exercises before spitting that that verse. Dude, she, I mean, she told me that, like, <clears throat> she's not really a rapper, right? She did a lot of editing <laughs> to make those songs come out the way she wants. Good morning, Shane. How are you doing? Good morning, brother. I am. Uh, I'm working away here in the background, just uh, enjoying a nice respite from the heat down here in, in North Georgia, man. It's uh, it's pretty nice, but I'm, uh, I'm getting pretty excited for PB next week, and I have a, a lot of people. I'm actually uh, hosting a panel out there, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's right. That's the other thing. We're going to be doing a Bitcoin Veterans panel live at the Swan Dome. I think that's going to be on Friday. <clears throat> So that'll be cool. That's going to be myself, uh, Shane Hazel. It will be 
Gabe Lord, Mickey Koss, and Jordan Gamble. The Swan Dome has some firepower this year. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, man. (laughs) I don't know. I think this is the test run. They're not sure if they want to let Bitcoin veterans on the on the main stage yet. They're trying. They're testing. They're seeing. They're like, what are these crazy fuckers going to do? Like, let's see what's up. Yeah, let me just apologize in advance for screwing up our chances at that. But let me go ahead and apologize for Jordan in advance too, because I mean, I think if we don't burn it down, it's a, it's a huge success. We all are apologizing to Jordan and for Jordan in <laughs> advance and um, considering getting an extra insurance rider for this particular event. Okay. What, um, what, time, what time are y'all going up though? Five? No, no. Uh, so Bitcoin Veterans is going to, we're doing Cafe Bitcoin 9 a.m. sharp Eastern. And then there will be a, an, a short intro. And then we're going right into Bitcoin Veterans starting at 10 a.m. on Friday in the Swando. God, I was only asking because if you were going after myself in blue collar, it would for sure be already burned down. So I was just checking. <laughs> Any update on the flamethrower? Having a little trouble in the marshal's office. They don't seem to think that 30 to 40 foot flame lengths that I can handle that. So it's it's a back and forth. It's unlikely, but, you know, never say never. All right. We'll hold out hope. Uh, let's get rolling into the show today. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 443. Shout outs to our supporters on Fountain and Noster Nests. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise, teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there's hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. Today, we are discussing Bitcoin news, covering some lizard alerts, and talking about what's going on in the real estate markets as well. Later today, we have Craig Raw, the founder of Sparrow. Looking forward to that. We're going we're gonna to dig in. Last time we had Craig here, we did kind of a lot of background stuff, like what is Sparrow, all that. Today, we're going to get a little deeper into the weeds. We're going to go straight into the technical stuff. So if you want to know about Sparrow, have questions, whatever, um, we're going to go straight into that. Right. What's the most interesting breaking news? There's congressman beating up Gary Gensler now to get those ETFs approved. And then at the same time, the SEC just delayed like three ETFs, I think, even though they're not even, you know, like a month from the deadline. And so they're, they're starting to kick the can earlier, I guess. So it's sort of a strange situation. Maybe they're trying to line up all the timelines or something. Terrence, yeah, I good think morning. That's, uh, that's, uh, good morning. On the uh, four um, elected officials in their open letter asking slash demanding Gensler approve the Bitcoin ETFs, they mentioned Fidelity, BlackRock, and Grayscale, thanks to probably the lobbying by Barry Silbert and his uh, compadres. Grayscale doesn't belong in that group. It just doesn't. Because... Because BlackRock and Fidelity together manage about $13 trillion freaking dollars. Grayscale is a pimp. Uh, it's a fly on the windshield. It's very small. 
And Barry has a lot of problems with his ethics and Genesis, GBTC, kind of commingling funds or whatever they were doing. I understand that a lot of people who have GBTC, I have GBTC, want the conversion to happen sooner, but they're just not in the same class ethically and just practically. That's like saying a corner grocery store belongs with Walmart. Well, all right then. <laughs> so, uh, Franklin Templeton just uh, filed a 19B-4 for its spot Bitcoin ETF application, which is officially starting the clock with the SEC. Franklin Templeton manages another one and a half trillion dollars. So, the big boys are uh, looking like the big boys are wading into the game. Yeah, the big four are besides Franklin Templeton, which is about one and a half trillion. The last one is Invesco, which is also about one and a half trillion. And those are all much bigger than the biggest of the um, also rands or the, the smaller uh, spot BTC applicants like ARC and Valkyrie and so forth. They're much, much smaller, maybe tens of billions or less. Hey, Terrence, for a liquor store, doesn't Grayscale have a lot of Bitcoin in custody? They do. It's going to be pretty minor compared to the rush of cash that should flood in. Uh, assuming, like, you know, the DOJ stuff with finance and stuff is looks like it's there's more certainty around that. They're trying to they're talking about maybe having a plea deal with CZ and Binance. So if that gets resolved, then yeah, you have a pretty big green light. I will say like one thing with the gold ETFs when those took off um, and gold prices shot up, that also correlated with uh, massive problems in the fiscal and monetary policy. And we definitely have that on the fiscal side. I would say on the monetary side, rates are you know, higher than you'd like for liquidity money supply is going down. But on the fiscal side with the ridiculous spending debt and deficits, that sets up a big, that, that's a great setup for a big flood of cash to come in as long as one of the big four launches a big uh, Bitcoin ETF. Hey Alex, not to, not to revisit an old horse. I know that's a butchering of the phrase, but, um, you know, I know yesterday we were talking about institutional and for those listening again, like, you know, the ETF comes up a lot again because it is a vehicle for institutional funds to hold commodities. Um, I know you guys were talking about it yesterday, but like other commodities, as far as I know, funds like pension funds, any commodities they hold, um, none of it is physical. All of it is uh, futures or ETF indexes and a lot of that has to do with being able to liquidate move things around balance the fund etc all right will you would, would you mind explaining that a little more in depth for people who don't get that because so many I, i've run into many people who don't understand that they're like why don't pension funds just buy the underlying asset why don't they buy the bitcoin directly why don't they buy gold directly why don't they buy corn directly why don't they buy oil directly what's the problem with that yeah, so one of the things with pension funds is there's a lot going on. 
Um, you know, I'm learning a lot about the history of pension funds and a lot of them used to just own simple bonds or treasury notes. And that made up the bulk of what a pension was when you think way back in the day, hundreds of years ago, where you just like worked for the city and you got, you know, the city gave you bonds or things like that. Uh, pension funds are very fluid now, dynamic. They're in a lot of different markets and between internal kind of mechanisms and the way that, that they function and the fact that they have to be able to move portfolios very quickly, balance uh, the portfolios, keep up with liabilities, uh, adjust to changing market conditions, etc. cetera. Uh, they all hold uh, investments that can be easily moved and, and uh, quickly, you know, converted, changed, cashed out, um, adjusted, et cetera. And so okay, obviously. I'm going to push back a little bit. In the case of Bitcoin, though, I mean, it could be argued that it's different. Like in the past, this makes sense, right? So if you had, let's say, a pension fund owned, <clears throat> let's call it 30 tons of corn, and that's distributed amongst physical corn silos somewhere in the American Midwest, uh, if they want to sell that quickly, I could see how that could be a pain in the butt. You're talking trucks, moving corn around, all this other kind of stuff. Same thing with gold. Now you got vaulting, you got logistics problems, you've got delivery issues, you've got all this stuff. Oil, same deal. What are they going to do? Let's get an oil tanker. Let's move it from this place to this other place. So owning the underlying physical thing is is kind of a pain in the butt. But Bitcoin is different in that we can send it anywhere basically at the speed of light. Uh, so it kind of removes that obstacle. What other reasons would a pension fund not want to hold the underlying asset? Why would a pension fund want to hold it in an ETF or um, something else? Yeah, so that's that's spot on, Alex. Um, and again, this is a new thing, right? We, we haven't had something like this um, where you could have self-custody, something considered a commodity that you could quickly move. So there's some, there's some mechanisms inside that have to change. I mean, number one, just to do that internally, you have to have a division within your organization that can not fuck that up and do that effectively. So that has to be something that has to be implemented. Not too difficult, but, you know, again, it's, it's, you have to convince them that it's the juice is worth the squeeze to invest money in an internal, um, you know, team that can effectively manage and self-custody Bitcoin. Um, so that's, that's one aspect, you know, another thing I would just say kind of to push back on that would only be, they don't have an understanding on how quickly you can move it, but you know, in market, in market conditions, if there was ever an issue with exchanges being able to, you know, there's lawsuits flying around from the sec, et cetera. So if they were to get stuck in a position where it was hard to move large amounts of self-custody Bitcoin due to regulatory uncertainty, that that would be an issue for them, right? Um, we know right now it's really easy to move, but there's always things pending that can kind of um, throw a wrench in that. And, and that may be a reason they use internally why they're waiting to see how things unfold. Um, the big thing right now is just convincing them that the juice is worth the squeeze. And, and I think it is that if, if, if they can ever self-custody anything, it will be Bitcoin. They can do it. There's just some things that have to happen 
um, and changes and, and internal mechanisms that have to change to make that possible in conjunction with institutional pension friendly um, self-custody mechanisms, which as we know, there's tons of companies that are working on those and making huge progress and advancements in that area. I'd argue if they're not comfortable self-custodying gold and view gold as a long-term store of value, similar to their private equity investments that are also illiquid and long-term holds, which they do have, then um, it's going to be a, a little tough to get them to self-custody Bitcoin anytime soon. They will do it eventually. It's just going to, people just need to be patient. But in terms of the spot Bitcoin ETF, I'm on Alex's, what I think is Alex's side, that uh, pensions can and will hold spot Bitcoin ETFs, especially if they're from the big four, Fidelity, BlackRock, Franklin, Templeton, or Invesco. They're very credible players, and you're kind of trusting them to not screw up their self-custody of Bitcoin because they're custodying the Bitcoin for you. So, but notwithstanding that custody risk, I think they still will prefer spot to futures. Yeah, 100%. I mean, those, those tools are made, they're built around institutions like that. So, I mean, yes, of course, um, you know, pending some of the pensions that got burned on things like FTX, who may have cold feet when a spot ETF comes, just because internally they have some, some battle scars you are going to see pension funds and institutional funds jump onto a spot ETF 100%. Yeah, and it's not just institutions. It's also retail and high net worth who suddenly find Bitcoin to be grown up and legitimized by one of the big four players that are actually launching and offering spot Bitcoin ETFs instead of these firms that they've never heard of. We know Valkyrie, ARK, and so forth, but most of America does not. Yeah. I also will just add one last thing, Alex, before we move on. You know, a lot of these funds, unlike, you know, private equity funds or hedge funds um, or other investment funds, they... There, it's a much uh, more dynamic process and kind of shifting things around and much more systematic. Like there's a lot of people with their hands in the pot that are driving the ship versus a few people that are making, um, you know, very quick investment decisions to shift a fund uh, based on, you know, market conditions and, and opportunities. Good morning, Surfer Jim. What's up? Hey, guys. Um, I, I was, this question is basically for Terrence, although maybe somebody else would have a, an answer uh, uh, different than his. I'm curious about the custody part. We, we were having this discussion yesterday about, you know, who controls the Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the person that controls the, the key uh, is, is the person that can move the, the UTXO on, on, the, on the network. And uh, do you, so Terrence, do you believe that, Places like BlackRock, and I would expect Fidelity would be way ahead of them on this, but are they going to self-custody their Bitcoin? Do you think it's likely they would set up the proper, you know, custodial ship, um, uh, you know, trust 
model that you know people can be comfortable they're not going to lose a bitcoin are they going to just use coinbase or fortress or one of these other entities that's out there what what do you think is the likely path that they're going to take if they get approval for a spot etf thank you yeah sure i think they're going to use a third party so it could be coinbase could be nidig or whatever uh, maybe not fortress given their Pure issues. On the other could hand, be, Fortress is owned be. by Ripple, and Ripple has a strong balance sheet, and they're not religious. They're not real Bitcoiners, so they don't care about that as much. So we'll see. Could. But yeah, I think I think they outsource that risk. I'd throw BitGo into the hat as well. Yep. Probably not Fortress, but BitGo would be a, a strong contender, I think. One last BitGo, question. Yeah. Is there any concern that just a handful of entities are going to now be custodying so many Bitcoin on behalf of so many other people? It feels like a type of centralization risk. Um, just curious what your perspective yeah. is on that. Yeah, th there's definitely that risk, and it'll get worse over time in terms of the big institutions and asset managers like BlackRock and so forth. Um, keep in mind that BlackRock Fidelity they just manage other people's money. So it's not like it's their assets. And you as a customer of BlackRock could easily move your spot Bitcoin ETF to somebody else. You could stay with the BlackRock ETF. You could abandon it. And you could abandon your account at BlackRock if you wanted to and just go to you know Schwab and buy the Fidelity ETF or Eck or something. Um, so that's one. Number two, we already have huge concentration risk. I hate to say it, among whale OGs, whether it's Winston's, Cesare's, or however you pronounce his name, or other um, whales who are probably continually selling here and there. They're Bitcoin, they're net sellers at this point forever, realistically, because they just have so much Bitcoin that they acquired at $10, $100, $1,000. So they're going to be net sellers. But that's good that they're selling. So over time, it gets distributed. The problem is the wealth inequality. And as you're alluding to, the um, oligopolies of asset managers and so forth, they're going to control or own a lot of the Bitcoin that's going to get sold in the future. Except, except, I will say, for the Bitcoin that's being gobbled up by Bitcoiners today and hodled hard. Yeah. Like... In the yeah. words of Battleant, plebs better hurry up. Get your Bitcoin, get it off the exchanges, get it into self-custody. Do it stat. Because this is the first time in the history of mankind that the plebs get to front run these large institutions. On the on the most asym the, the most powerful asymmetric trade on in the history of mankind, I might add. Hey, Terrence, okay. uh, could you expand on I'm just curious, again, about this centralization of, uh, you know, small groups of people owning large amounts of Bitcoin. Uh, assuming what you just articulated, that that has already been the case for 14, almost 15 years now. And it doesn't appear that those individuals that control large amounts of Bitcoin have done anything um, specific, uh, significantly negative to affect the overall Bitcoin ecosystem or the adoption of Bitcoin. What would change um, other than the philosophy sure. of the person ho holding the UTXOs? What would change if other large entities control large amounts of Bitcoin? 
I say that in rel- in regard to the their inability to change the protocol, anything about the protocol specifically, even though they might be able to change the market yeah, yeah. Uh, exchange rate in some way. Uh, thank you. Sure. So you saw in the 2017 blocks, block size wars, where I was on the wrong side and apologized, but Roger Ver, Jihan Wu from Bitmain, they controlled a lot of Bitcoin and they try to change it and got the support of Brian Armstrong and all the big businesses in Bitcoin, almost all the businesses in Bitcoin supported that. That arguably almost won, but did not. So thankfully they lost, I was wrong. Um, and so you could have something like that happen. I actually think it could be worse to have longer term, to have um, a lot of Bitcoin where BlackRock or whatever can vote on hard forks. Like they, a lot of people have pointed out that BlackRock has language in their filing for the spot Bitcoin ETF where they can kind of decide what fork to go with. Um, practically, they'll probably, at least for now, go with the majority. But at some point, they could be pressured by the government, like if the U.S. really wants to go 6102, you have a president who's super progressive, like AOC, or su- just super authoritarian, doesn't matter, the party, and they want to crack down on Bitcoin uh, more or a lot more. They could act in a way that is against Bitcoin, Bitcoin's interests and freedom's interests, because the current owners of Bitcoin, even though it's concentrated, they are um, all real Bitcoiners to some degree, um, however misguided. Like, I don't think Jihan Wu is a real Bitcoiner. He's just a pragmatist, wants to make money. But Roger Ver, for a while, people thought he was a real Bitcoiner. Then he went off the rails. Thanks. That's, uh, that's kind of my been my perspective. Um, I, the BlackRock um, wording in their ETF uh, uh, application makes sense from a fiduciary standpoint. That is, they're governing other people's Bitcoin. And if there is a hard fork proposed or one that actually happens like Bcash, they would have to make some fiduciary, fiduciary decision on what chain they're going to consider that they're still on. Uh, you know, I guess if there's a hard fork, you get tokens on both chains. Um, I don't know that they would necessarily be able to move the worldwide market because everybody else would also have to be on the right, let's call it the right chain. Um, those who, those of us who stayed with BTC in the block size wards stayed what I believe is on the right chain. That being said, um, there's really no way to ensure BlackRock ETF holders end up on the right chain because the fiduciaries might make the wrong choice as it works its way out over the next six months after some hard fork. Wouldn't that be fair to say? They could totally screw up and make the wrong choice and every one of their customers is screwed because, you know, the, the majority of the world went with the, the correct choice, let's call it. Is, is that fair to, to actually say there's a possibility that could play out that way? Yeah, I think if uh, BlackRock owned Bitcoin or had a Bitcoin ETF, at the time of the block size wars, they would have. There's a good chance it would have gone with Fur and Jihan because they don't know developers. A lot of non-technical people supported that horrible proposal. Um, but but ultimately, they can't kill Bitcoin. They can just hurt it. So yeah, you could have uh, you could delay Bitcoin adoption and put it in a dire straits for for 
years, a few years, but you know, short, medium term, you can hurt Bitcoin, long term, you can't. If this is a random thought, but I mean, it's random, not random, I guess. We were talking about it a little earlier. You had mentioned Terrence, very large holders of Bitcoin, like OGs, who are sitting on potentially thousands or tens of thousands of Bitcoin selling. And there'll be regular sellers. There's no reason for them to buy at these prices, um, given their current stack and the current price that it's at. So I will concur with that. I'm, I'm starting to see as Swan develops more runway and more reputation, we're starting to see OG Bitcoiners who have been around a long time coming to Swan. And they're, I mean, they're selling basically. So it's just a little bit at a time. They're trickling it into the market essentially, uh, which is good in my opinion. Like it's good that, 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 starts to diversify the ownership of it. It's good that it gets into more hands. This is all a good thing. Peter, what's on your mind? I'm, I'm curious. So I understand, you know, why people with very large amounts of Bitcoin um, are selling. But I'm curious to know what people think they are purchasing. I mean, they're, they're selling the scarcest asset known to man. And they're they're, they're purchasing, purchasing life. No, they're purchasing yeah. life. Food like the ones <laughs> the ones that I know are buying life. All right. So like you have money, you have wealth, you have all this other kind of stuff. A person I respect greatly basically says the wealthiest people in the world have complete control of their own time. And so these guys are basically they've bought their time back and they bought their life back. And that's what they're paying for. Yeah, eventually, I mean, this is the whole point of Bitcoin in my eyes is it's money that you can save and, you know, you're not saving it for nothing. You're saving it for the future when you're going to spend it. And so these are the guys who have been saving it for, you know, 8, 10, 12 years and now they're spending it. And so you ask what they're spending it on. Well, rent, food, maybe they want a new car doesn't get i mean who cares right? maybe they're maybe, maybe they're building the kids, the kids maybe call. they're building citadels not that i know anybody who's doing or maybe they're or maybe they're starting a new business i don't know i mean like but eventually you want to get to the point where you know you can live off your stack and it's large enough that it will never be depleted even when you start to live off of it right this is another really interesting thing about deflationary money is that you get to a certain point where your cost of living is going down priced in terms of Bitcoin fast enough that by living off of your stack, you'll never actually deplete the whole thing, right? Like if you've got a thousand Bitcoin, you know, you can live a pretty lavish lifestyle if you want to for the rest of your life and you're never going to deplete that whole stack. And, right? you, can, all, and you can roll with that stack. You can roll, uh, you can travel with that stack. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, obviously it's like, yeah, it'd be nice to have a thousand Bitcoin, right? I mean, shit, it'd be nice to have a hundred, it'd be nice to have 10, all right? But like, we're all trying to just get to a certain point, I think. Some where... people are like, God damn, I'd really like to have one. Yeah, have exactly. One? Exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, like, it'd be nice to have one, it'd be nice to have 
10 million sats. Next, I have 1 million sats. I mean, it's, it's just going to keep getting harder and harder to get to these kind of these, you know, these these markers, right? After and, the after the next having, the goal is going to be denominated in what? sets, no longer in Bitcoin. People I are going to be like, oh, if I could just get to 50 million sats, oh my God. Yeah. Right. There's also there's also those OGs that are forking over their coin to uh, invest in further Bitcoin uh, businesses or ventures. So like, don't discount them either because they're they're going to be yeah. the ones that are seeding the actual growth of not only the circular economy but producing actual beneficial um, elements into society that are like producing like a real working product. Yeah, it's absolutely happening, Shane. Yeah, there was a good tweet out there. I think CK put it out from uh, all their awards just recently. Like Ben Perrin, I think, got $25,000 to start creating content. Like this this is actually coming to fruition right now where we're seeing these OGs come back into the market. And uh, I think it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, one of my questions, uh, you know, for anybody up here, especially, you know, having Terrence up here, we've got, you know, this, this first order of effects is going to come in from the ETF. Uh, in you know the coming months, hopefully, and then you know what I don't think I've heard a lot of is talk of like what are the second, third order effects? Because as people are becoming more and more interested in Bitcoin itself, because they have exposure to Bitcoin, that that is going to lead to an education. That's going to lead to a process of going down these rabbit holes and getting introduced to the idea that like, hey, man. Although you're exposed to Bitcoin and an ETF, you're going to have you, you don't actually have it and you're not going to you know have it. If, if you're hanging around guys like, you know, this and, and Cafe Bitcoin, you're going to be told, you know, first and foremost, hey, listen, that ETF that you've got exposure to through BlackRock, Vanguard, whoever these guys are, um, that's not yours. That's that's paper Bitcoin. And you need to take whatever you can before you're forced into a CBDC and move anything you can into self-storage, self-custody. And that's one of the things I think that's, you know, coming down the line that we've all got to be, you know, very prepared for is all these people that are going to come in through the ETF that are going to need real education. Yeah, that's a great point. Hopefully um, with uh, ETF success, which I think will happen, and I think they'll launch by Q3 next year, maybe Q2. Um, <clears throat> that flood of cash that comes in to buy Bitcoin from <clears throat> sellers. Some of those sellers are going to be very wealthy. Uh, maybe they're OGs liquidating or whatever, and they can fund or um, continue to fund um, these projects that are trying to make self-custody easier on the UX side and simpler and more give people more confidence. And then all the baby steps along the way, whether it's Swan Vault or collaborative custody, Fediment and so forth. Better second layers. Yes. I have I have a different news topic I wanted to bring up. So Dom and Surfer Jim, if you guys are on topic, uh, by all means, go ahead of me. I was only going to piggyback on what Shane was saying in that, you know, yeah, like hundred percent. What he's saying is on point. And if you look back, like. Um, CalPERS filed a lawsuit against BlackRock in, in the early 2000s for butchering a real estate deal where they lost like $500 million. They will fuck up, and they don't care who gets hurt when they mess up. They're going to protect themselves and their best clients first and dump shit or issues on anyone else. So it's only a matter of time. The, the story that's older than time is third parties will burn you. That's why we preach self-custody. 
And that won't change with a Bitcoin spot ETF. It's just a matter of time. And if we can teach institutions or funds just that simple fact that they have that option, like Alex said, to self-custody and that it's not like gold or oil, that you can do it and move quick. That's a huge lesson that's very beneficial, even if they still buy the spot ETF to start. Can you like imagine? To... Wait, oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Hang on one second, Jim, and I'll let you go. I just want to make a quick comment. Can you imagine the size of that freaking rug pull? If the freaking BlackRock ETF got to, let's call it, $500 billion, Oh, my God. That By the way, that would be a big honeypot. A $500 billion stash of Bitcoin would be a big freaking honeypot for, like, talk about hackers getting after stuff. <laughs> and you're starting to see some really, really sophisticated attacks in the, in the crypto space. I mean, like social engineering, they figure out everything about you. They sim swap you. They do all this. I mean, very precise stuff targeted directly at individuals or people or companies holding lots of Bitcoin. So that's a thing too. Jim, go ahead. Yes, sir. Jim, go hey, ahead. thanks. Uh, I just wanted to add to the previous conversation about the, uh, some of the OGs in this space that help fund other people like Ben, uh, you know, the, the you're cutting out. Um, initiatives by other people in the Bitcoin space have large amounts of Bitcoin. Okay. Sorry, and I guess Jim. this is just... Get better internet. What? Oh, sorry, I'm driving. All right, never mind. Go. Who's next, Mike? Uh, I was just going to comment real quick on what we were just talking about with the bug pulls, and then Mike can go. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> um, I mean, there's going to be, what, like a dozen ETFs? I don't know how many there's going to be in the end. Right? It's going to be a, a, quite a bit, right? a handful at least. And what would be interesting is if one of them gets rugged, right, or hacked or whatever, and then the other ones have to tighten up and actually, like, get the books in order before, you know, they get caught, you know, fucking around and, and finding out. So what would be interesting yeah. is, like, you know, a, a case where one of them gets rugged and then the rest of them kind of, like, people start to really pay attention. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of rugging by FTX and Binance, so it could be a situation where they just – give it to fidelity it's the biggest player that has the most experience in bitcoin and let them figure out custody see how it goes before they open the floodgates that could be one thing they do otherwise they could just be like if i'm the sec maybe i just give it to the big four uh by assets under management because the next num number five is like 95 percent smaller <laughs> It's like not even close. You, you know, so, ironically, just like, um, follow Michael Saylor's. Sorry, just real quick. Follow Michael Saylor's strategy of having different um, institutions custody. Each holds like one key, and you have two or three collaborative custody, something like that. Yeah, you wouldn't want to split the stack up. But ironically, it's going to be these entities who have hundreds of years of experience in physical security governance of, of, of assets. Uh, it may sound weird, but yeah. I personally believe it's going to be these players and institutions who have deep, deep knowledge, sort of like genetically in their DNA of their institutions, because it's a physical thing when it comes down to, ultimately it's a physical security problem. So it's going to be 
a combination of governance and physical security um, for these kind of $500 billion stashes of Bitcoin. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I just wanted to add as far as like a different news thing, if anybody wants to talk about it or maybe nobody wants to talk about it. But um, if you guys missed it coming out of Bitcoin magazine earlier today and published in an article by Cointelegraph, another oil and gas conglomerate has announced that they are going to be using Bitcoin mining to improve their operational efficiencies. Uh, the, the company is Tech Petrol, and it's owned by Techcent or Techint. I don't know how, like, how you pronounce the name, but I believe it's a Italian company that owns it. Um, just to further show that the energy space is continuously getting orange-pilled and realizing the kind of value that Bitcoin mining brings to the whole global energy conversation that everybody's talking about now. Gorlami. I'm sorry, what was that, Tom? Sorry, that was an inglorious bastards reference. You remember when Brad Pitt's like Gorlami? I just think when you say <laughs> when you say Italian oil and gas, I think of some like dude from Texas who's like, Yeah, Gorlami, we're Italian. Yeah, I think, By the way, I think this sorry, Alex. Go ahead, Mickey. I was just gonna say I think I think this is interesting because it's I mean, it, it's sort of obvious for anyone paying attention that, that Bitcoin is, is slowly infiltrating the entire energy infrastructure and industry, right? And so I, I guess it's just, I was excited to jump in because we're moving from like theoretical rug pulls to like shit that's actually happening. So I thought that was, you know, a good transition. Thanks, Mike. I mean, the rug pulls are happening. You've been around for the past few years? Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about theoretical, like, BlackRock rug pulls when they don't even have anything yet. So it's just, I don't know. Says who? Sort of uninteresting. Tomorrow, by the way, we have Giga Energy coming on. Uh, Mike, if you're available, would appreciate if you're here for that. Oh, I will be here for that. Do you guys see that uh, that video or that? Well, there's a video floating around the interwebs of Matt Gates basically saying that uh, <laughs> the money is debasing so fast that you now have to bribe politicians with gold because they don't want to take U.S. dollars anymore. <laughs> it's freaking hilarious. So when you can only bribe them in Bitcoin, does that mean we've won? Mm. SEC still won't have figured it out yet. They'll be like, yeah, the electeds are taking bribes, but like, yeah, we're not approving that spotty TF. It's not, uh, can't do it. Well, okay, here's a different question, though. If you, take the, if you take away the money printer, can they actually hold on to power or can you get those people out of there? Because then you, if you have good people in office, do you actually have to bribe them? Mm. You know what? what would be a really cool thing to do is maybe like we could bribe them with our vote. <gasps> what a concept. Wait, what? We could offer like, Hey, if you do what we want you to do, we'll vote for you. 
Nah, man, get out of here. That doesn't work. Jim, welcome back. Hopefully you have better internet. Hopefully. I pulled over just so I wouldn't go in and out. Um, well, I, I'm not going to comment on that last thing because that, that can get deep. I, I did want to just touch really quick on what Mike brought up regarding the energy thing. So I do a Tuesday night spaces uh, with Gary from Bitblock Boom and Lynn V from Mexico. And last night we had these three guys from Mexico on. And they have an initiative they're working on. Uh, they got a, a company called Carter Jeff BTC, and they are talking to landfills and farmers that have bio waste, biogas waste. And they're, 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 they got a, um, their initial project in the Yucatan. They're ready to fire up and they're super excited, a bunch of young guys, but they're, they're widening the spectrum of, so like they were talking about how they can't get into the get the natural gas or oil industry because it's co-opted by the state in Mexico. They're too small and, you know, they're not big enough players, but they're still making headway. And it's all the same thing. It's about using wasted energy, balancing the load, pro providing electricity in places they wouldn't otherwise want to set up electricity because there's no buyer of first resort. But Bitcoin miners can be the the immediate buyers of the electricity produced from anywhere. And then that electricity can then be shared. So these guys are getting stuff going out there in the world that the average person would have no clue. It's on, it's on nobody's radar. I think this stuff's going to be big. I think it's going to be everywhere eventually. And it just broadens the, uh, the topic. So tomorrow, Alex, when you got the, the oil and gas guys on, you know, maybe they know about this as well. I know there's at least one company in the U S whose name I can't remember. starts with a V who's uh, got a big initiative in this area as well. I just think it's an interesting topic. I don't want to derail the other conversation you guys are having. I just wanted to bring it up and mention it. If you want to go back and listen to the spaces that was recorded last night with these three guys, uh, they got a lot going on. They're very interesting. They're go-getters. They're young. They're what we need in the Bitcoin ecosystem worldwide. And they're making stuff happen. Their proof of work is, is happening down in Mexico. And I just think it's it's good to spread the word and make it known for everybody that, that there's a lot more going on that a lot of people don't see. Thank you. All right. Pregnant pause there. I was multitasking as I often do during these shows. Um, and I need to keep multitasking actually, unfortunately. So Dom, you're in charge. Oh, snap. What <laughs> up y'all? Yo, Dom, Dom, I got something. I want to go back then. If uh, since I got a minute here, I could just jump in like a lot of people you do. Know, Wait, Dom, oh, Dom, I'm going to oh. think about that surfer gym. I got to uh. think about, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm actually getting ready to roll in the surf. But I'm gonna oh, hold strong there. for a second. Oh, dude, three to five, keep it alive. All right, we, run, we it, run it, run it, for Jim. Good waves happening here the next couple of days, so I'm hoping hoping to get in. Uh, now I wanted to go back to um, people were talking about custody. People were talking about um, trust and OGs uh, helping to you know give back. Um, you know, we we talked about people that were getting funded for their work. Um, there's a company in New York City almost nobody's heard of called Chain Code Labs. Um, they employ several core devs uh, out of their own pocket. They don't sell a product. They're just a, a very large family office that has a lot of money invested in Bitcoin early and want to make sure it doesn't break. And they're on the right side of the Bitcoin ethos. So these guys spend 
hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and nobody even hears about them because they they just they don't care they're not out there to be famous or anything they just want bitcoin to keep working and i was just going to suggest that over a long enough period of time those people might have tens of thousands of bitcoin and tons of fiat dollars as well uh but for those people who don't have as many even though today 100 bitcoin is a, a huge amount for one person to control um that person will probably be in a position one day to give away some of that Bitcoin because they'll have just so much purchasing power and they also won't want Bitcoin to break. And then the guy with 10 Bitcoin in 10 or 15 years might find that that 10 is more than enough for him and his family. And so he gives back to the ecosystem. And I just see a, a world. I, I just wanted to sort of make a positive statement. There's a lot of negative that we have to deal with in this space. But I just think this is a positive dynamic that's going to play out as people get further down in this ecosystem and own and control enough Bitcoin that it's more than enough for them, they will use it to give back. We see it already at lots of different levels. I just think it's going to continue. And I think it's a positive thing. I just wanted to sort of highlight it and bring it up for discussion if anybody cares to elaborate. Otherwise, there's plenty of other things I'm sure you guys could cover. Thank you very much. I actually I actually really love this idea, right? Because people always, you know, like they wonder like, you know, people, how are people going to invest their Bitcoin if it's always increasing in value? Why would anyone ever spend it or, you know, build anything if they could just hold their Bitcoin and then <laughs> and then increase their net worth that way? And it's funny because it's like, well, you know, these guys who've, who've got a, a pretty large stack, they're incentivized to keep the network alive and to, and to grow it and to make it better. Right. And they know that if they invest in the right way if they if they support core devs and they invest in the development the further development uh and ongoing development of bitcoin then the remainder of their stack will actually grow in purchasing power more than the amount that they invested right so it's like it's this weird return on investment where it's not like you know you're not getting any bitcoin back for that investment but the bitcoin that you have remaining becomes worth more than what you had spent so it's like and this is actually it's kind of i mean it's it's like trickle down economics really it's like you know you got the big huge whales who've got a ton of bitcoin right and they know that if they place their investments if they place little little bits of investments here and there then the remainder of the stack will actually grow in value more than the value that they invested right so it's a different type of return on investment um, but you know, nonetheless, their their net worths increase because of those investments, not because they're getting anything back, but because they're actually you know the the remainder of the stack is growing in value due to the investment. And the same thing can be thought of like doesn't even necessarily have to be Bitcoin related, right? I mean, imagine like it's like you really fucking like apples, okay? And so you invest in making the production of apples cheaper. And then guess what happens? You can afford a lot more apples, okay? Because it's a fixed money supply and because we're not debasing our currency and adding more units, now you actually see the benefits of that, that increase in productivity that you've just discovered, right? Because of your investment. And now you can afford a lot more apples because they're a lot cheaper. So, you know, these types of things you're going to start to see once, once more and more people start using Bitcoin and investing, you know, in, in that way. When we see an uptick in the availability and affordability of apples, we'll know that Wicked has begun investing his Bitcoin. Bro, they're going to be so cheap. You know, apples are pretty much going to be free at some point, I believe. 
Well, speaking of apples, I'm going to have to take a quick dip. I know Alex is probably back, but I'm going to transfer command here to the most wicked Don't apple. do it. Don't do it. The most... Don't do Alex, it, Dom. Alex. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Sucks to suck, wicked. Welcome to the military hierarchy, buddy. Am I next in command? I would have thought, like, Mike... Or like, I mean, come on, Bitcoin no, veterans. No, 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 no. You don't get to put <laughs> this, this is this is E four mafia shit. Like you're taking shit, you're taking command here. Oh God. All right. Well, hey, all wicked. Right. I guess we're just gonna talk about UTXO management for the next thirty minutes. No, 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 no. Wicked. <laughs> I, I'd like you to uh, I'd like you to explain what what you're doing at Cash App again and how that works and how that's beneficial um, for people in the space. Okay. Yeah, that's a good topic. And, and and I've only been doing it for a few weeks now, but so far so good. Basically, they have, um, you know, so, so if, if you're on payroll, they have an option where you can get your direct deposit in Cash App. So you don't have to use your bank anymore. You can use Cash App as your um, as your place to, to direct deposit. They give you like a an account and a routing number. So you just give that to your payroll and then you get your check at Cash App. And then on on that section on their like you know on their on their uh, direct deposit section, there's a slider for how much of your check you want to auto convert into Bitcoin, right? Uh, so you can convert as little or as much as you want. Um, you know, it's it, I would advise you to drag that as far to the right as you feel comfortable dragging it to. I've got it to 100 percent, as <laughs> as you may have guessed. Um, so yeah, so basically every, every week now when I get paid, uh, first of all, my check comes in two days early, which is nice. So I get checks on Wednesdays now instead of Fridays. So that's cool. And then second of all, they get auto converted into Bitcoin. So I, I never even touch fiat like from my, from my paycheck, it just straight into Bitcoin. And, um, one of the really nice things about this is that there's no fees and there's no spread. So last time I got paid, I checked the uh, the price on TradingView, you know, the the exact minute that I got paid, and it was the same price, you know, within within a few bucks. Do you right? think Do you think that that is a, um, a a bait to get you to get to to do direct deposits there, and that that's going to change in the future? Um, I don't know if it'll change in the future. It might, but I mean, I think right now they're trying to build their user base and trying to build the amount of people who are using Cash App as like their go-to, you know, basically bank, right? Like they're, they're trying to get people to bank with Cash App, essentially. So, you know, they want you to direct deposit there, and they're and they're incentivizing that by allowing you to basically get, you know, Bitcoin without a fee, which is nice, right? I mean, there's there's very few places where you get Bitcoin with no fee and with no spread, right? You can do the direct deposit thing at Strike, but I still think they have a bit of a spread. Cash App, it's no spread, man. It's fucking crazy. So now I'm getting like, you know, one to two percent more Bitcoin every week, right? Because that was the that was the fee that I was paying earlier. Um, and I don't have to like worry about and it's like one less step. It's just like boom, Bitcoin. That's it. And then I go in there and I I withdraw it, right? Just to cold storage. Uh, I might keep it in there a week or two just to build up enough to to get a fat UTXO, but but yeah, man, it's it's pretty cool. And then the other thing that Cash App has, which is nice. They've got a debit card. So if you need to spend some fiat, you can always convert some back to fiat and spend from that debit account. And uh, that debit card has some pretty good 
cashback, um, you know, uh, promotions or whatever. So like, incent, you know, it's, it's 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 almost as good as as just <clears throat> getting like the cashback rewards on a credit card. So you kind of don't need credit cards anymore either. I've been I've been looking for a reason to drop all my credit cards because it just feels kind of dirty. So I kind of like you- this. And and wicked. Have you have you hold on a second here, Dom? I know you're in charge, but I got another question to ask. Have you created a, a short video on this with like pictures and stuff? Because us boomers like need pictures. We need we need that kind of thing to help us do this stuff. I haven't. I'll consider doing it. Um, you know, the only the thing about Cash App is like you know when you when I'm going through and I'm like doing a demo video or something, there's a bunch of information I'd have to like blackout not to dox myself so maybe this would be a better thing for like btc sessions to do since we all know who he is <laughs> i see him in the audience down there i don't know if he's tried this out. well actually no you're fucking in canada so you don't have cash app damn it peter okay. needs a pop-up oh. book on how to do cash back in in bitcoin i'll just say before i go wicked you got to tell him the best part is you can design your own car you can literally write anything on your own card i mean think about that y'all you can scribble anything on there yeah, you get to design your own debit card, which is kind of funny. Mine, I designed mine. I got mine a long time ago, before I was orange filled, actually. So it's just got like the <laughs> the peace sign from like a hand or whatever on the corner, and it's all black. But yeah, anyways, I should probably get a new one with an apple on it or something. Anyways, no, it's it's pretty cool. I like, um, yeah. I like getting Bitcoin with no fee and I like not having to deal with, you know, fiat, you know, it's like, I think for somebody who has, you know, for somebody who's, who's, who's got their earnings suspending, um, pretty high, right? Like you've, you've reduced your spending as much as you can. So now your earnings suspending ratio is, relatively high i think it makes a lot of sense to convert as much of your paycheck into bitcoin as possible using this method because you're not getting hit with any fees on it and then if you if you if you happen to kind of overestimate or rather underestimate how much fiat you need worst case scenario you convert some back to fiat and then you pay the fee you would have paid anyways you know to get it back into fiat but at least when you're in, you know, you're sitting in Bitcoin, like the majority of your check, which you would have put into Bitcoin anyways, now you're doing that with no fee, right? So you only pay the fee on the way out back to fiat. And it also kind of incentivizes you to stop fucking going back to fiat and stop spending on shit that you shouldn't be spending on. <laughs> so it's like, it's a win-win in my book. Hey guys, guys, this is Greg. It's just math, you idiots. Just do the math. Sorry. By the way, I want to say that that handoff, Dom, from you to Wicked was excellent. If you guys have seen, okay, you guys ever seen Star Trek? You know, like when so-and-so leaves the bridge, he's like, you have the con, Mr. Whatever. That's how it works. That's how it works in the military, too. You just leave somebody in charge, and uh, hopefully they don't fucking crash the ship. And it's not a, it's not a negotiation. Yeah. You, you've got the wheel. Take it. You are in charge, homie. Hope we all don't die now. Uh, BTC back, Sessions, Alex? Ben Perrin. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm I'm loving what I'm hearing from Wicked here. Uh, living a, a Bitcoin standard. Uh, 
I I just all I wanted to tag on to that was um, it is an interesting thing happens when you're 100 percent Bitcoin is become you become much more conscious of your expenditures because every expenditure is an opportunity cost of saving that Bitcoin. Whereas um, if you're mostly in fiat and then you put Bitcoin off to the side from time to time, then, uh, you know, you, you often will keep more fiat than you actually need. Uh, so if you can kind of, if you can stomach the volatility of, of, uh, being on a Bitcoin standard, which, you know, you kind of get used to, um, and you just know what your bills are every month and pay them immediately. And then, and then everything else is sitting in sats then it becomes a conscious decision for every single expenditure after that. And, and you become, over time, you build better habits. That's my, my takeaway anyways. Yeah, that being said, I just, I just spent like 15,000 sats on a fucking eraser from Japan um, for an art project. So, you know, I mean, you still spend, <laughs> you still spend on some things that you want. You know, because like, you know, some things in life you just want, right? Like I want to do some fucking artwork and I wanted this eraser so that I could like, you know, erase shit uh, better. So, you know, there you go. Let's let's be real. Being a Bitcoiner doesn't completely exempt you from doing dumb shit time to time. I <laughs> I, I can speak to that. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, overall, like, it's like, do I, get the, do I get the plastic version of this eraser that's like, you know, Five thousand sets, or do I get the metal one? Well, what do you think? I mean, hey, I'm gonna go for the quality. This metal eraser is gonna last me for years. Bitcoiners are like in in uber accelerated learning mode, right? Like we we plow into things at an accelerated rate. It's like whoever fails the fastest and learns from it, it wins, kind of thing. Anyway, let's wrap this topic up. I want to welcome to the stage Craig Raw, the founder of Sparrow Wallet. Uh, and man, really happy to have you here. Great to be back. Um, yeah, uh, good to good to chat chat again. Likewise, uh, let's we're going to dig in here with uh, Sparrow here shortly. Last time we had Greg, we uh, we talked a little kind of like high level overview. Um, Today, I think we're going to get deeper into the weeds. We're going to get into some of the technical stuff. I'm glad we've got Ben here, um, as well as everybody else who might be um, familiar and proficient with Sparrow to ask some good questions and get into the get into the um, details here. Uh, so wrapping up that last topic, Surfer Jim, did you have something else you wanted to say? You've got your hands up right now. And uh, Actually, no. I was curious about Ben and Wicked, uh, if they would be so kind as to elaborate once they're on sats only uh i can imagine that many of the expenses they have are to people who don't accept bitcoin and so they have to have a quick and easy way to convert from sats to fiat in you know ben's in canada i, I think wicked's in the u.s but either way i'm just wondering if they could tell us um without doxing any personal information what it is they use what products and services that they're able to take advantage of i i believe of some, I, I know of some, I just don't know what these guys use. So just to help people understand how you're making it happen at your end, uh, I would certainly appreciate it. Thank you. Cash app. So I've got the debit card. You can spend, I mean, you can, you can convert Bitcoin to fiat in a matter of seconds and then spend from that debit card on your cash balance. You can also use that debit card 
at an ATM to withdraw cash if you need cash, cash, right? So I just do it that way. Yeah, um, that would be super useful. <laughs> but uh, there's there's a few hoops that I jumped through in Canada, but there's also some services that you guys don't have down there south of the border. Number one being bull Bitcoin. Holy crap, is that ever an incredible, useful service? I can basically pay, pay any bill in Canada with Bitcoin. So like um, utilities and and phone bills and internet, like just anything or send any amount of money directly to a bank account without having to like fund an account and then convert. And then it's just, no, here's the bill and the account number. And then bull Bitcoin says, all right, send this amount of Bitcoin to this address. We'll take care of the rest, which is amazing. Um, I also use uh, gift cards, typically bit refill. Um, the Bitcoin company is also another great one too. Uh, but nonetheless, you can, pay with bitcoin uh, on chain or lightning and get gift cards you know for things like um gas and groceries and all that kind of stuff uh and then also actual circular economy stuff i've got a guy I, basically i started going to my local meetup and i started asking hey i'm looking for the following thing that i'd love to pay in bitcoin for and when you're at a bitcoin meetup um, I think that's kind of the best way to do it. Take five minutes at the beginning of every meetup and allow anybody that wants to get up to say, I'm either looking for or offering the following things paying uh, paid for in Bitcoin. And so I was able to find a dude that I can get beef from, a, a rancher south of me. And then I was also find, able to find another dude that does has a bunch of chickens. So I get my eggs uh, and then there's also a dude that is north of me that has like chickens, eggs, uh, beef, uh, all kinds of stuff. I'm working on my barber. And yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm sitting at now. It's it's a hodgepodge of circular economy stuff, services where I can pay bills directly and then gift cards. Um, I do get some fiat. And with the fiat, I, I basically just dump that as quickly as possible on bills that I already know that I have. And if I have additional things, then um, I'm using a thing called coin miles where I can also do gift cards, but I get paid in sats back. Um, so yeah, shout out coin miles. That's something new I started using recently. So anyways, that's where I'm at. And a real quick question, Wicked, about uh, one last thing about Cash App. Do they charge a fee to um, move your sats to cold storage? No, no fee. So uh, they also have lightning withdrawals as well. No fee. So you can you know, if you've got a smaller amount, you want to you want to move over to your Lightning. Uh, you know, if you're on like Phoenix or whatever, you can move that no fee. Um, but yeah, if it's a larger amount, anything over a hundred thousand Sats is uh, zero fee. Uh, you just got to wait for the next um, batched transaction. So they make you wait. You know, maybe a couple of hours until they have enough customers. You know, wanting to withdraw, and then they batch you all together in one big withdrawal, and that's free. If you want to do things quicker, you know, then you then you pay like the you know you, you basically pay the minor fee if you want to do things immediately. But if you're willing to wait a couple of hours, uh, all withdrawals are free on Cash App. Okay, it is time to switch topics. I suspect that you guys would keep talking about this for the next forty minutes. However, we should try to get Cash App people up on here. We should actually, Jacob. I'll, can we I'll, do that? I'll I'll work on uh, Jack. What about Daniel Burr? Isn't Daniel? Um... Isn't it? Yeah, I think Daniel's working at Cash App, isn't he? Yeah, let's look. At, let's look into it. That'd be cool. All right, uh, Sparrow Wallet. 
Let's see. Sparrow Wallet is three years old on September 1st. It's becoming a thing. Multisig, passphrases, QR, NFC, on and on and on. Craig Raw, talk to us about Sparrow Wallet. And everybody else, ask him some hard questions. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess uh, I'm talking to quite a few people here who understand and use Sparrow Wallet a lot. So um, I don't want to rattle off for too long about it because I, I don't know um, how much the audience already knows. But uh, I'm certainly happy to dive into any particular areas of it that may make sense. You know, um, anything that people are interested in or would like to know more about, um, by all means, ask, ask away. Craig, I have a quick question. I recently um, was interacting with um, Sparrow on Telegram, and I know that in our previous um, session here, you had said that you are the only person that uh, interacts. It looked like a a bot that I was interacting with. And to be quite honest with you, I was a little leery of the questions that were being asked, and I wasn't sure if it was if it was the bot or I was actually very leery of what was going on. And I was hoping that you could uh, possibly make it clear to those of us who are, are not as technically adept that what we're talking to is actually um, Sparrow and not somebody that has somehow managed to get onto the Sparrow network and, um, you know, is trying to fish for something. So I, I assume you mean the Telegram chat there um, when you refer to that. Um, so look, the, the first thing with Telegram, and this doesn't just apply to sparrows, that you shouldn't be trusting any DMs from anyone. So if you get a DM, and this happens regularly for those new users who come into the Sparrow Wallet chat, which is the kind of uh, the Telegram group that is used to provide support, then unfortunately, there are lurkers within that group who in particular are looking for messages from users that they perceive to be inexperienced, and they will immediately um, send DMs to those users and unfortunately try and scam them. It is unfortunate that Telegram is so rife with scammers, and they do very little, in my opinion, to try and improve that situation. In particular, just even if something basic like getting the Sparrow Wallet group verified has been an uphill battle where I just basically don't get any response. So I try to do what I can, but the reality is Telegram doesn't do much. The best advice, as I say, is to ignore any DM. So if you would have got a DM from anybody, um, it, is, it is not from me, uh, and you are therefore talking to a, a scammer. I don't DM anyone. Um, so I, I, in fact, if anyone DMs me, I, I say, let's go and chat in the group because the best, uh, defense that you have is really the, the transparency of talking in a group where you've got lots of other users who will quickly jump on anything, uh, that they deem to be, um, you know, kind of, uh, un unsafe and they will quickly flag it. So that's really your best defense is to make sure that you are never, talking one-on-one -on -one to anyone um, and to always make sure you're doing it in a group, regardless of whether you're trying to get help for Sparrow or any other um, kind of wallet or product. On, on the group though, Greg, is there a bot that answers 
people or is it only you on the group that's answering questions? So on the group, we have, um, you know, basically anybody can answer. There are around six admins who tend to provide more regular support. So it's definitely not just me, um, but, you know, anybody can jump, jump on there. The key thing really is to make sure you're on the right group because unfortunately, again, Telegram has allowed many scam groups and the scam groups, unfortunately, have uh, many more users. They're all bots. Um, this is the extent of how of how rife it is that the, the current Sparrow Wallet group is just under 2,000 um, users and the scam groups have around 20,000. So they look more official, which is why I'm trying to get the group verified. But um, you know, if if you're on a group and you feel that it's not right, then you know believe that because there are scammers are are unfortunately very common out there. Um, so first thing, make sure you're on the right right group, and that's the group linked from sparrowwallet.com. Um, and in my uh, Twitter handle or the uh, at Sparrow Wallet handle. Um, and then secondly, make sure you ignore any DMs. So those are my two pieces of advice there. And just, just to say this, because it always needs to be said, never, ever, 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 ever give your seed phrase to anybody, <laughs> ever. <laughs> Craig will never ask you for your seed phrase, and Sparrow Walt will never ask you for your seed phrase, at least not on Telegram. So just never, ever, ever give it out. Yeah, I mean, what these uh, scammers usually try and do is they'll uh, they'll sort of talk to you for a while and then say, well, to solve whatever issue you're having, here's a website. And then they'll give you some website, which will sound like sparrowapphelper.com or whatever. And then that will then ask you for your seed. So that's kind of the way that they, they do it. Um, and as I say, these there are legions of these scam scammers out there. It is, it is un unfortunately the reality that lots of people are trying to part you from your Bitcoin. And um, you have to be quite vigilant in order to make sure that that isn't going to happen but again you know so long as you're careful so long as you as you verify that you're following the right link to the group and you ignore any dms then it's it's fine um i hope that in future either telegram proves its its um its health uh, or its its kind of uh, ability to root these bad elements out um but if not then hopefully we will have a better support platform it's just you know you have to be where the users are and we could use something uh, you know much more um with with that you know much more uh capable perhaps of getting scammers out but then you would find that much fewer people would be there so it's it's kind of a balance and um yeah to be honest i wish that it was better Just jump in here, guys, whoever was first. Hey, Craig, I've got a, a question for you. This is uh, Bitcoin and Mendocino. Um, uh, it's about typing seed phrases. And speaking of never, 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 I've always heard uh, never type your seed phrase in, into any internet-connected device. And, and yet uh, all wallets uh, give you the option to, to do that, to recover a seed phrase. Could you just talk to a little bit about the security of that and whether there's an argument for a wallet that won't allow you to do that one that will only let you use the signing device. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think that you know that advice is 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 quite broad. Uh, it's it's not per se bad advice, but you know, if you if you consider you know two things, I think then then I think you you know you might come up with a slightly more nuanced view. The first is what is the computer hygiene uh, of the computer that you are using? Is it you know is it some Windows? machine which has you know which is used by all kinds of people and potentially has has malware on it or is it a fairly clean linux laptop which you kind of make sure that you use only for a few certain things you know in the latter case your chances of being of that seed being retrieved from the software wallet is really much much lower so that's the first thing that I would think of. And then the second one is, what is the value that you're trying to protect? Because the reality is, if we we, we need soft software wallets for all kinds of needs, for example, running a lightning node, or, you know, if we want to use Whirlpool, there's all kinds of good good reasons. And, you know, so long as you are practicing good computer hygiene on the computer in which you run it, um, it's actually okay. Now, you might have other reasons where, you know, you might need to enter the seed. For example, if you need to make an emergency recovery, say your hardware device you believe has been compromised and you need to get those funds off fast, then you would do it in that, that case. Generally, though, you wouldn't want to enter a seed from a hardware wallet into a soft, soft software wallet, but there are plenty of occasions where starting off with a seed on a soft software wallet and using it in that form is okay. Again, it's just about looking at computer hygiene and about what value are you trying to uh, protect. Ben? Hey, um, I'm going to change gears a little bit. I had a question in around uh, privacy tools in Sparrow. So currently, obviously, uh, you have Whirlpool baked in, which is super awesome, and a lot of post-mix uh, great tools. You have coin selection, all this stuff, and then um, like a one-person... I guess one person coin joins on the way out, which is really, really cool. My question is in and around um, connection to your own Ronin Dojo. Like if you're, if you're connecting that um, the steps to do so, because obviously I've, I've gone through it with Samurai, uh, but I've not gone through those steps with Sparrow. And I'm just curious about, that and if it's easy or if it's in the you know will be streamlined or kind of where it's at and then my my follow-up question is um is there anything in the back of your mind where you may consider also uh integrating um something like join market down the line to give some choice in that realm i realize it's probably at a left field but is that something that maybe one day we might see Hey, Ben. Um, yeah, so let, let me answer your first question. I believe that, uh, well, let me first of all say that Sparrow does not connect to the Dojo backend. Uh, so that's the Samurai Wallet custom uh, kind of backend API that they have made. And that's the API that um, Ronin Dojo has. However, 
Ronan Dosso also bundles an Electrum server. I, I believe it's either Electris or Fulcrum. And further, I believe that they've recently changed their interface to make connection to Sparrow via that Electrum server much easier. So I believe it's now a pretty easy option in um, their interface. Uh, so I, I think it shouldn't be any issue, particularly if you have the most recent version. I, I think it was pretty easy before, but now they've made it even, even easier. Um, in terms of um, other, other sort of coin joins, I'm, I'm uh, hesitant to uh, add things that make the UI more complex. That's always my, one of my first um, point, points of call. Um, there's also an argument to say that, you know, the more coin joins you add, the more you divide the liquidity up between different coin joins. You know, the, the one advantage that join market has always had is that it has this decentralized nature, which has certainly been a great strength and one that Whirlpool has lacked. But going forward, Whirlpool is going to be moving towards a decentralized model, but with one liquidity pool. So that we should see towards the end of this, this year. So that really, I think, makes it a, a very strong contender. Um, and, you know, there would need, then need to be an, another argument, if you see what I'm saying, to bring join market market in. So it's not that I dislike join, join market or have anything against it. It's more that I'm trying to think about, A, how do I create a simple UI so that people actually use the tools rather than talk about the tools, if you know, know what I mean. And um, secondly, you know, is there is there a... A particular reason or a strong argument there, and, and as, as I say, I think join markets argument, which certainly has been strong, is going to become less of a reason in future as Whirlpool adds adds that particular feature. What is the feature? Just so I know, I like I'm, I, I get what you're saying. I just hadn't heard anything um, recently. Whoa! So what are, what are you talking about there? Sure. So what's going to happen is right now when you are performing uh, one of those two-person coin joins um, is you use this layer called Soroban, right, which is a kind of a layer sitting on top of either Tor or ClearNet, and it is a, a, a privacy network communication layer that some Samurai Wallet have developed where you essentially are, at least in the current uh, version, you're using payment codes as an ID. So BIP47 payment codes can kind of identify your wallet. And that allows you to, as it currently stands, uh, talk to other users on that network and then perform a mix. So be able to do that in a decentralized way. Now, Soroband 2 is now being rolled, rolled out, which is going to be a version that instead of operating off one server, is now going to be basically um, off, off many. So it will be a more decentralized version. And then on top of that, we're going to have different Whirlpool coordinators running so that those will be talking to each other. And this will allow us to then have a decentralized whirlpool in the way that it is not today. So right now we're talking to a single server and in future we will be talking to many. And there will be a discovery process on that Soroband network, which allows you to then connect to whatever 
coordinate uh, you find first, and then those will then talk to each other. So that'll give you one liquidity pool, but many different coordinators. So it'll become much harder for anyone to be able to shut that service down. Awesome, thank you. Uh, going back real quick to the idea of computer hygiene, and you know, I know you had talked about Linux and a lot of more advanced users are Linux users, right? They prefer that. I mean, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm just a simple, you know, ADIQ pleb who's got a Mac. What do you think of Macs? Are Macs good too, or or should I uh, really consider doing the Linux thing? Um, you know, I think Macs are pretty good. Um, I use a Mac myself. Um, I, there, there are actually some good reasons to consider why Linux is not the most secure. Um, they're quite esoteric and kind of down the rabbit hole, but uh, that's not to scare anyone off. That's just to say that there are no ideal or perfect answers. It really is about, um, you know, really what you're using your computer for and how careful you are when you install things on it. And I used the example of Windows earlier mainly because Windows users are less experienced um, and because Windows tends to be a little less secure than a Unix-based operating system. So, you know, I, you, can, you can still have malware obviously running on Linux. You can still have it on a Mac. It's, you know, when I think about um, any new app that I need to install, I first of all think, do I really need this? You know, is it really that necessary? And what I actually do, because I'm lucky enough to have more than one computer, I, I might consider either a using that app in a in a sort of virtualized environment or using it on a different computer, just just to make sure that the computers that I run are as clean as they can be. Or I might just decide that actually I don't really need that app and there's a way to do it without actually using it. So I tend to think about that way. And I think the same applies to phones, really. You know, if you're using your, your phone, you know, consider what apps you actually need. Um, and I think that's that's good good advice, um, which has been touted by by many others. Um, so that's that's my kind of thoughts on it. Craig, um, first of all, I want to thank you for the documentation at Sparrow. Um, it's amazing. Um, I'm a, I'm just a dumb boomer, and I was able to, with with some help, I was able to um, figure out how to use Sparrow as a as a wallet. There's tons of functionality there that I don't I don't use, and it's mostly because, you know, I I basically send uh, BTC to my UTA, to my to my addresses. I don't. Uh, I don't do much with it generally, so uh, I do I do a transaction every now and then or a send every now and then. But my question is, um, going forward, like looking into the future, I, I'm hoping that at some point, um, and no offense to uh, BTC Sessions or or Wicked, because um, I'm sure that they would uh, love this world. I'm I'm looking for a a world where you know we don't have to go to a BTC sessions to try to figure out how to use uh, how to use the software and, and how to do things that it's just, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it's easier to do. One of the things that, that I talk about when I'm orange pilling people is uh, I ask them, you know, with the current banking system, how they would uh, look at that banking system and how difficult it is to, to utilize 
um, if they've never done it before. So I do understand that there's a learning curve with a new technology, that kind of stuff. But eventually, I'm I'm hoping that we get into this world where it's kind of iterative and uh, just like with an iPhone or a, or a or an Android phone, it's iterative. So that as long as you've been following along um, with the progression of the technology, that um, uh, you know it becomes easier and easier to use intuitively. And I'm wondering. You know what you see uh, in that future, or or if you see a future like that. Yeah, it's it's always difficult to look too far into the future. I think we humans are very poor at it. Um, I think it's a very hard thing to do. So you know, on the one hand, um, you've got the kind of ease of use, uh, convenience angle, and then on the other hand, you have the need to understand what it is that you are you are doing and. Sparrow, uh, I think, clearly leans towards the you need to know what you're doing, because um, if you don't, then you're going to be revealing potentially more information about your transactions, paying higher fees and all kinds of kinds of things. So, you know, Sparrow obviously leans towards that. And frankly, I've been surprised over the years to discover how how important people find that particular uh, side of side of things. You know, there's there's obviously plenty of people out there who still use uh, Trezor Suite, Ledger Live, who you know make it much more um, easy to use. But obviously, with the downside of uh, you know a whole lot of things get chosen for you, you're much less private um, as a result. Um, and I think it's clear that you know as people get more into Bitcoin, as their lives depend on it more. So their desire to understand what's going on and to really get to grips with their 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 own wealth um, becomes important. So you know, can we ever uh, do away with this? Can we have a, a wallet that is completely intuitive, that is you know like like an account, um, you know, in your sort of local bank, and at the same time, you know, still maintain um, the kind of levels of Privacy and fee efficiency that we we would like. I don't think so. I don't think so at layer layer one. Um, I think that layer one kind of is what it is. It will evolve a little bit from from here, but it's not going to dramatically become some something different. And as a result, the concerns and the issues we have today are not likely to be dramatically improved. Um, and I think you will need to keep to keep on thinking about its. Uh, if you're doing layer layer one transactions, however, that doesn't uh, mean that the layers above need to follow the same the same kind of path. You know, currently, if we look at Lightning, it's it's probably even harder. But you know, there may be other layer two solutions, or Lightning may evolve into something much easier. So, you know, that's kind of how I think think about about, about it. I'm obviously building a wallet here primarily for the store of wealth kind of use use case and i think when it comes to that you do want to know what's going on because presumably you're going to be storing a large part of your wealth in it and you don't want to fat finger that right so i, I think that there the education that sparrow provides uh in in its in its ui and trying to explain what it is that you're doing is important because you need to have that understanding if you want to be as secure as you can can be. There's simply no other way to ensure that you are actually you are doing what you actually want to, want to be doing than to understand what it is that you're trying to do.
Craig, uh, a couple of quick questions about coin joining. These are beginner questions because I'm basically um, uh, I've always heard that if um, UTXOs get coin joined, they may not be accepted by exchanges. Uh, I just wanted, wondered your thoughts on that. The other the other couple of questions. Uh, I know that that uh, features there in Sparrow. I just haven't touched it yet. Um, but if um, if I turn it on. Does the wallet need to be open and, and running for that to work? And then uh, are there fees involved in doing uh, a coin join? Um, well, let me start sort of with your last question first. Um, yes, there are fees involved. Um, uh, they, they aren't uh, too bad, but if you go to whirlpoolfees.com, you'll be able to estimate uh, the, the, the fees that you pay. So you can do that completely outside of Sparrow, but Sparrow will certainly give you an estimate of, of the fees well in advance of you broadcasting any transaction and thus incurring any fees. So the way that it works is you construct this uh, first transaction, the sort of premix transaction and then all the fees are then detailed in that so you can see what is going to the miner and what is going to the whirlpool coordinator in order for that premix transaction once you've broadcast that premix transaction uh remixing is free and that means that you can then get further mixes on that so you then again taking part in these five person coin joins but all of that is then free because that is then paid by other people who are coming into the pool with new premix transactions. So that's kind of uh, very briefly how fees work. Now, in terms of um, whether you know transactions that have been sent through Whirlpool are getting blocked, I'm not really hearing much these days. You know, there was um, a company, I believe a UK company whose name I temporarily forget. I'm sure somebody here will recall it. Uh, who has since gone under, but they were blocking it briefly. Um, and that's not to say that it won't happen, but what you know you can do is then just uh, take that amount, put it through a few transactions, actions, so kind of send it to yourself a few few times, because the detection is really just looking back a few hops um, in the chain, and it really doesn't do much more more than that. I think broadly speaking, and more from a philosophical point of view, if we are scared about using these tools, then the the kind of um, the powers that be that don't want us to use them have in effect succeeded in their chilling effect. They have, they have uh, managed to prevent us from becoming private. And that's, I think, a, a, a worrying thing and, a, and something that we should avoid, right? So... The answer, in my view, is to use the tools. And the more of us that use them, the more normal it becomes, and therefore the more um, that it becomes uh, difficult for them to have this attitude of you can't use CoinJoin. I mean, really, a CoinJoin is just coming, you know, a bunch of people coming together to um, contribute inputs, con contribute funds to a common transaction. That's actually all that it is. And if we can't do that in this world, then you know, we've lost a lot of ground. Um, so my kind of view is, um, given that it's relatively easy to circumvent the current detection and given the importance of preserving our access to these kind of tools, um, I think it's still worthwhile. And, and certainly um, you don't need to put your entire stack through it if it really worries you. But I do think that using the tools is an important defense. And if you're not using them, then they might not be there for you when you do actually.
Did Craig Raw get a phone call or am I the only one? I did. You want to repeat the last like 60 seconds of what you were saying? Um, where did you lose me? Maybe 10 seconds. Yeah, I'm just, sure. yeah, I was just saying about using the product that it's it. Sure, I was just saying that I think it's important to use the, the tools to ensure that we still have access to them when we really require, acquire them, that, um, that they're still out there for us. And if we don't use them, uh, then, you know, it, it just, it's, it's, it just becomes a small kind of fringe bunch of people who use them. And that's so much easier to push those pe people aside. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's one of my primary, um, uh, messages, I guess, you know, we have to make coin join a normal thing. All that we're really asking for is the same level of privacy that we enjoy, you know, with our bank accounts, which, you know, no one can see. And we even expect the government can't see without a court warrant. So, you know, it's, it's not an unusual thing when you have a transparent and open blockchain to seek privacy for your funds and CoinJoin is one of the few ways in which we can do that. So I, I do think that it is a normal thing. I don't think it's anything strange. And I think it's relatively easy to get around any kind of detection um, should that be required. And just uh, one quick follow-up is on, the, on Sparrow. Do, is it, uh, if I'm using that feature, is it basically like a transaction or... Do I need to leave the software running in order for that coin join to happen? Yes, you do. So um, you basically what what is going on there is you have something called the Whirlpool client, which is this piece of soft, soft software, and it's basically queuing your UTXOs up in terms of uh, being able to remix. So you don't need to stay online beyond the premix transaction, and your deterministic links are broken in that first transaction but generally people want to get remixes because it does increase the size of the crowd that you are hiding in that said if there are others and there always are if there are other people who are staying for remixes um you benefit from those remixes as well this is something that a lot of people don't uh, fully grasp so every time anybody who has mixed with you gets a remix, your, your um, and, and anonymity also improves. And that's that's a really powerful feature. Unfortunately, it's, it's too computationally intensive to show that in the UI. It, it, it takes a whole, whole, whole lot of work. But, you know, to focus on your own remix count is actually not as important uh, in the real world as the number of remixes that you and everyone else, else gets. Uh, the other thing that I want to add is that you don't necessarily have to keep Sparrow, the desktop app, open to get these remixes. There is an, another way to do it, and if you're running a node, it might make more sense. So Sparrow also comes in a, in a textual version, a little text app, so there's no kind of UI, and that allows you to run it on a node which doesn't have a GUI. And that basically acts as a remixing client and you can kind of move around in that little text text app and see how things are going. But it really makes it, it certainly made my life much, much easier because now I don't need to be running Sparrow on my desk, desk, desktop all, all the time. I can be running it on my node and it just sits there and mixes away all the time. So every so often I get new funds that come in. 
I send a premix transaction through and my node then just sits, sits there and mixes it away. So it's kind of an ongoing process that I just always have running. Um, and that I find works very, very well. Ben, did you have a question? I just to tag onto that. Is there any chance that that might be something that could roll out to say like a start nine or something like that? Because that would be incredibly useful uh, to have that just kind of rolling in the background. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Ronan Dojo also has. Uh, a product in their stack called Willful GUI, which is made by the Samurai Wallet team, which does exactly the same same thing. Um, Start nine, yeah. I mean, there's there's absolutely no reason why that couldn't be built built in. You know, I, I don't generally, unfortunately, have have the time to work on other people's stacks. I kind of just need to provide the soft software that I provide and hope that it gets integrated um, into other platforms and i agree it would be really nice to have that as a one-click install um but for those those who kind of are comfortable with command line who can ssh or whatever into a server this is absolutely something you can do today chris go ahead man yeah hey craig um so just changing the subject a little bit i've done uh, First of all, love the tool. Um, periodically, I'll do an RBF or a CPFP just uh, for practice, and um, Sparrow makes it really easy to do that. I think it's a great way of um, then not panicking if you send a larger amount and uh, worry about the transaction not going through. So I highly recommend people using those functions if they don't already. But one, one question I had was whether or not you plan to use, to, to allow op return data to be submitted with transactions. Is that something that's doable? It is. Um, again, you know, just going back to what I was saying previously, you know, whenever I consider a new feature, um, I have to consider, you know, does it make the UI more complex? And I sort of guard that that gate pretty tightly. So I haven't yet thought of a good way to to allow people to add up return information without um, making the UI more complex in a way that I don't 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 like. That said, I haven't spent a huge amount of time thinking about it. It's not something that I think is a common use 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 case. And in fact I think I'm battling to uh find a good use case for it. Um you know generally I think people just want to kind of embed a bit of data into the block blockchain, which isn't it isn't sort of the um can I say the the most compelling use use case that there is given that we all have to now Download load that and um, put it onto our nodes. So I'm I'm sort of hesitant for those reasons. Uh, that's not to say that I won't do it. I just kind of there there is an open issue in the Sparrow Wallet repo, uh, and I'm certainly happy to hear of compelling use use cases that might make me revisit it. But the, those two concerns um, are what come 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 to mind. I don't know if, if anyone has any other thoughts on it. I appreciate you thinking about it that way. Actually, it's uh, it's nice to hear that you're you're thinking about the actual integrity of the of the base layer as well as just functionality for functionality's sake. And and it's actually a really good pushback because can I think of a really compelling case for why 
the op return data could be there other than to just put novel bits of data onto the onto the blockchain when you're sending transactions it's probably fair to say i can't think of a compelling reason so uh it's a it's a really fair point and it's nice that that's the way that you're thinking about how you build out the tool as well so i think that's actually commendable cool thank you wicked yeah, I had, to, I had to drop out there for a meeting for a few minutes. So I didn't know if you mentioned this, Greg, but one of my favorite features of of the mixing uh, built into Sparrow is that you can, you know, once you're done with your mixes, you can you can mix them or I guess send them out to your cold storage straight away. I don't know if you mentioned that, but that's like a pretty cool feature, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly. Um, I think the way that most people use it. Um, so, you know, you can kind of create that, that break in the chain, um, which allows you to, you know, if you're buying on a KYC exchange, I think it's always worthwhile repeating this, you know, the KYC exchange and anybody who has access to their records is going to know how much you bought. So that's very important to understand. But if you want to break the link of those funds going forward, then Whirlpool is great. And then you can kind of send those off to your cold storage and no one will be able to see where they went. It will just have gone into this big cloud and, the, and there'll be no way to be able to tell. So that's that's a, a very useful use, use case because it allows you, um, for example, even if you buy on a no KYC exchange, like for example, Peach, you still don't necessarily want uh, whoever you bought it from to be able to see where it, where it went. So again, they're using Whirlpool gives you the advantage of being able to break that link so that that person can't then see, oh, that's interesting. They went off and spent their funds here or there. So one thing I, you know, I will bring up is, you know, I don't, I don't use uh, the mixing that often, mostly just because of, you know, it's expensive to use. And I'm wondering if you think, those fees will ever come down are they are they racing towards zero like everyone else are we going to get cheaper and cheaper mixing move, moving forward or is there some constraints that will always keep it kind of expensive you think well so i think that the main constraint there is really trying to prevent the denial of service attack um you know we it needs to be at a certain level otherwise you can have uh a civil attack on on that particular service service so that's kind of one of the key things now if the if the value of bitcoin goes up so that um we can a fund the developer efforts and b um prevent those that kind of civil attack vector then i think there's no reason why those fees can't come down over time and i can't see why they wouldn't um so you know it's not up to me um but uh i would think that um we could see a future where they do come come down to be sort of in line with uh what people would reasonably expect to pay you know that the the absolute value in bitcoin will be less but perhaps the fiat value will be the same okay there is a question that came in from Steve. Um, this is the UTXO Oracle guy. <clears throat> I don't actually understand what this question means. I'm just going to relay it verbatim. So maybe you'll understand what this means. <laughs> so his question, or he says, ask him about core authentication cookie discovery for me. 
What is that? Uh, so I think what he means is when you um, when you're connecting directly to a Bitcoin core node, um, the old way of doing it was with a username and pass pass password, which still works today. There's no it's no reason why you can't do it that way today. But the new way is via this little cookie file. So basically, what you have to do uh, is tell Sparrow where that cookie file exists and. By default, it looks in the normal place where Bitcoin Core would put it, but you know perhaps you've installed Bitcoin Core data folder to some other place. Perhaps it's on a you know remote hard hard drive or what whatever, and therefore you have to uh, select where that cookie file is. So that's that's really what he means. I'm not quite sure what the question um, kind of entails. It's really just about trying to locate that that file um, uh, if you're using that 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 method. If you have specified the username and password in your Bitcoin.conf, then that cookie file won't get created and you'll be using the other method. Maybe he's wondering which way to go or for insights as to what you think is better. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's no massive uh, difference, really. I think generally you'll be talking to... Um, a local Bitcoin core node, because if you're not, then you're doing it wrong. You know, you really shouldn't be trying to connect to your Bitcoin core node over Tor. Um, it's not, you know, even the Bitcoin core devs would advise against trying to connect to a remote node. So, you know, if, if you're trying to, you, you, you're basically not dealing with a secure transport layer anyway. So whether you're reading a cookie from a, a local folder on your computer or sending a username and password, across uh, the wire, you're probably going to be doing locally. And therefore, you know, the the protection doesn't matter as, as much. Obviously, you can't read a local uh, file if you are, for example, you are connecting to Bitcoin Core running on some other computer. So in that case, you will probably be using the username and pass, 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 password. So that's kind of the difference. For, for, for the most part of why you might be using one versus the other. The cookie file is the default. So if you don't configure anything, that's kind of the default way way to go. But if you're running on a Bitcoin core on a re remote computer, then you'll probably be using the username and password. Craig, just la last thing for me and then I'll jump down, but um, I use a YubiKey and for security on the actual device itself in terms of opening the wallets, um, it would be really cool if um, you could link all the wallets that you owned to a um, YubiKey or a set of YubiKeys so that you can then, um, you don't need to kind of put the, username, the password into each wallet. I don't know if you've thought about that, but that, that would be a really cool thing for me anyway. Um, I haven't actually given it a great deal of thought. I do actually own a YubiKey myself, um, so it is something I could look look into. Uh, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the YubiKey is not open source. Though. Um, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be integrated. Uh, I'm sure that it could, um, no doubt, given that GPG uses them and it's obviously open source. Um, but you know, it's it does to some extent speak to you know, do we put our trust in closed source devices? Um, uh, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point, but so, certainly not, not a bad idea um, and one which I will consider. Can I try and, can I ask a quick question at this point? Go ahead. Sure. 
Okay, thank you. Um, thank you for the talk. I, can I ask a question? I think it's related to what you were just speaking about. And that is that like I have Sparrow connected to my node and I'm connecting through Tor. Um, but if I miss, did I misunderstand you that you that that's not the best way to be connecting to the node via Tor? No, so what I'm saying is if you're connecting to Bitcoin Core, so if, in, if you go into your server preferences in Sparrow Sparrow and you have Bitcoin Core, selected there and you're connecting over to uh, what I'm saying is that is not ideal um, because you basically are giving anybody who has access to your tour your sort of onion address um, effectively they will be able to get into your your node because your node is not really trying to protect us it's, it's got no advanced you know kind of protection against um, that that sort of access and you know somebody could hit it a million times to figure out how to get in so as i said even the bitcoin core devs don't advise that now it's more likely that you are connecting uh via a electrum server um so again if in your server preferences you are you have the electrum server tab then it's absolutely fine. Then you are, there's basically no, no information that an Electrum server stores about your wallet. So anybody can connect to it uh, and they cannot learn anything about you. So that's, that's very safe. So I, I just want to clarify those two. It really depends on the manner, or sorry, the, 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 the backend that you are connecting to as to whether it is safe or not. Did that answer your question, Isaac? You have to unmute. I'm going to assume it did. Yeah, so All just right. to clarify that, uh, uh, Craig, then, so you're saying that the uh, option, which I believe is the uh, yellow switch, which would be the um, Electrum server, that's uh, that's as good as good as using the green switch for the, directly to the node. It's, to the Bitcoin Core, is that correct? Um, so, uh, so they're, they're to, just for, for those who aren't too familiar with with it, there are three different ways you can connect Sparrow to the Bitcoin blockchain. The first is uh, you mentioned that yellow switch, so that refers to a using a public server. Now, there are obviously downsides to that if you're not using your own node, you're using someone else's, which is certainly the the, the case for that that option, and therefore you are trusting your privacy with whatever server you are using. That said, Sparrow only uses a small curated list of servers run by individuals and com com companies with a track history of promoting privacy. So it's relatively safe, but it obviously cannot be guaranteed. The second option is connecting to a Bitcoin core node. As I've said, do that with a local Bitcoin core, core node. So one running on the same computer or the same local network that you are on. Don't connect to a remote Bitcoin core, core node because you shouldn't really be exposing your Bitcoin core uh, to any kind of remote connection attempts. And then the third, which is a blue toggle, and that refers to a private Electrum server. So that's probably something like Start9 or Ronin Dojo that contains a Electrum server that you then connect to. So that. The, the benefits of an Electrum server is that it doesn't store anything, as I said. So it it, um, it allows you to run it uh, on a server that you can connect to from anywhere in the world. And it, even if somebody was to get access to the Onion address, 
that uh, you use to connect to that, they cannot learn anything about your wallet. So it really makes your um, your experience a lot more private and a lot more safe in that sense. Okay, we have about three minutes left in the show. Follow up. Um, and that is whoever's speaking is cutting in and out really bad. Is it just me? No, he's cutting out. Um, All right. Use I want to thank you for coming up and asking the question. Uh, we have time for maybe one more. Uh, and then we're going to give Craig a few moments to make some closing comments, and then we're going to wrap for today. Craig, we want to thank you for being here. This has been a great discussion, and I uh, appreciate you going in-depth and in detail into how Sparrow works, as well as the attendant features. Sure, I'm very happy to do, do so. Um, does anyone have anything else they would like to ask? By the way, you can request to come up and we'll add you. We'll be kind, I promise. You could also ask a question in our Telegram group if you want to, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Okay, I'll ask a quick question. And that is, can you talk a little bit about the multi-sig setup in Sparrow, Craig, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. So um, when you create a new wallet in Sparrow, Sparrow, the very first field uh, that you have to consider is whether you want to create a single SIG or a multi-SIG wallet. And the multi-SIG wallet uh, allows you to create a wallet um, like a two of three wallet, which is the default that uh, is first shown. And then what you need to do is then have three different signers. And those signers can be software wallets, although that's unusual. But generally, you will then have a bunch of different hardware wallets, or perhaps of various kinds or makes, uh, that will then allow you to then sign. So you can either do this with uh, a bunch of people. Each of you has a particular signer or a signing device, should I say. Um, and then that allows you to then create a multi-sig wallet. Or you can, for example, use this for your cold storage setup where you have a bunch of different devices and you want to, say, locate them in different geographic locations. That will mean that nobody can come and put a gun to your, your head and say, give me your Bitcoin now because you'll be able to reply, I can't actually do it. We have to get on a plane or what have you. So there's a number of different ways and reasons to do it. Um, but it's largely the same process as setting up a single seg wallet. So, you know, all of the steps, if you've done it with Sparrow before, pretty much the same. You're just now dealing with uh, a number of different devices instead of one. So you'll go through the process and setting up that wallet of importing each device, one off the other. And then at the very end, there's one special step, which is around making a copy of a description of the wallet, which is generally what we call the output descriptor and sparrow will prompt you to do that when you save the wallet for the first time it will show a di dialogue and you can either write the output descriptor out or you can save a pdf with it in and so long as you have either the sparrow wallet file or that pdf or a copy of the output descriptor you can always recreate the wallet and so long as you have enough signers for example two in a two of three you can sign any transaction going out of that wallet so those are the kind of the key things to know about multi-sig wallets. They've been made to seem quite scary in the past. I think that that's largely been a case of 
poor UI, and I think that that's then spread into sort of education of it, of saying rather avoid, avoid it, but it's actually a lot easier than you think. Again, the only step that is different is the fact that you have to then save a de description of, of the wallet. That's, that's the key step, because even if you had two devices in that two of three, you still need the description to be able to recover the addresses and thus to be able to spend from that, that wallet. So that's, that's sort of in a, in, um, a short description uh, what multi-sig is and how you do it. All right, perfect. Thanks for that. Is that Last few moments. Yeah, ahead, I just Charlie. wanted to get quick clarification. Is that referencing derivation paths or is it something different? Uh, so the output descriptor contains uh, these three things for every signer. It contains something called the master fingerprint, which describes the seed. It contains the derivation path and it contains the XPUB derived at that derivation path. So and it'll do that for every signer and then finally it will have the script type in there as well. So you don't actually need to understand any of that deep detail. It is in there and it does, you can read it. It's sort of a human readable, even if it does look a bit techy. But um, actually all that you need to do is just to have a copy of this, 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 this thing that contains this information. And once you have that, you have the full ability to recover that, that wallet and spend from it at any time. So basically you just need to keep track of those nine pieces of information on the three sheets of uh, forms somewhere stored away safe and you're good. Yeah, so it's it's actually just one one sheet to be honest. It's a one sheet PDF which contains a big QR code that has all that information in it and then the information is kind of written out in text form underneath. So that's what the PDF looks like. But obviously your Sparrow wallet file also contains that. So that's kind of the other option, if you will, or you can do do both. Just have a, a backup of your Sparrow wallet file. Maybe you have a really long pass, password on it, so you're happy to put it in cloud store storage, or you can kind of say, no, I don't want to go that, that route. I'd rather have a paper PDF. There's also a company called Seedhammer that actually allows you to kind of put this entire thing into a into a QR code that's hammered into metal. So there's all kinds of different ways of doing it, but um, it's generally not all that different from writing down your 12 words. It's just this one additional step which is required with a multi-sig wallet. All right, wow. that's we're pretty much out of time, so we're going to have to roll to to wrap up here. Craig, I want to say thanks for being here. Uh, any closing comments you'd like to make? Where can people find you, Craig? People who are listening onto this on the podcast, who is far larger. The podcast audience, by the way, is way larger than the live audience on Twitter uh, by orders of magnitude. But do you, uh, where can they find you and where can they find Sparrow? Sure. So on uh, on on X, you can find me at Craig Raw, C-R-A-I-G-R-A-W, and Sparrow Wallet, the, the kind of wallet which you can follow to know when there's a new release and what's in it. That's uh, at Sparrow Wallet, um, sort of is the, the normal way you would spell those, those two English words. Um, and then sparrowwallet.com is where you find the wallet itself. So, you know, the, those are also linked from, from, from there, those those handles um, and that's that's uh, that's I think the best best way to kind of um, find find the wallet, wallet make sure that if you download load it you do try to verify the down, download that that you get 
And the final thing that I'll say is, you know, if you are hesitant uh, about um, getting your coins off an exchange, it's really not that hard. There's a quick start guide in the documentation that kind of takes you through it. Um, and there's a guide for using a cold card as well. And then uh, BDC sessions and Wicked have produced lots of videos amongst many, many others. So there's lots and lots of help out there. Um, you know, go and do a bit of internet research, uh, figure out how to, how to do it and get on, on it. Because, you know, if, if uh, it's just something that you would want to have done earlier rather than later. And even if you don't put all of your welfare start learning to use these these tools because um, it really does change the way that you see Bitcoin and um, what value you place in it. So that's my closing thoughts. Thank you. It's been really cool to have you here, Craig, as usual. Craig Raw, ladies and gentlemen, founder of Sparrow. Thank you. Check him out mm -hmm, for sure. All right, next week, during Pacific Bitcoin, there is no Cafe Bitcoin on Monday or Tuesday. We're resuming Wednesday. We will be broadcasting live from the Swan Dome on Thursday and Friday. Thursday, we have Ben, also known as BTC Sessions. It's going to be there. Friday, we've got Tip NZ and Tomer Strolite joining our regular crew. So it's going to be me, Dom Bay, Peter, and Ant live with those additional guests. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you're going to be there we are recording Bitcoin Veterans again tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. We'll let you know. Follow the at Bitcoin Veterans handle for more info on that. If you're going to Pacific Bitcoin, I'm going to be attending the Pled Party. If you're a Cafe Bitcoin and you want to meet up, that's where we're going to do it. That's it. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple if you can catch the live show. Thanks to Swine Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked, Don Bay, Producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM. My DMs are open. Thanks again to the speakers who come on here every single day to teach people about this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. That's what I call getting on the mission. Let's go. Love you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today and crush it.